Hey, and welcome back to the show. And welcome to 2022. I'm not sure where 2021 went, and still we are here. In this episode, I'm talking more about the non-diet approach and how I use this in my coaching and counseling work. This may be a newer concept for some of you, so I want to clear up any confusion you may have. Then you get to decide if this fits where you are and what you need. If it does, and you want to know more about working with me, I'd love to chat. In the show notes, I've included a link to my calendar where you can schedule a time for us to video chat about how I can help you end your struggle with emotional eating. Before we dive into the non-diet approach, I want to share some information on diets. Now, I know we all think we know about diets because most of us have probably been on a few or a lot. In fact, a 2019 British survey of 2,000 people found that the average person will try at least two diets per year or 126 diets over the course of their lifetime. Many of these attempts don't last longer than six months, with most of these attempts lasting not more than a week. All of these attempts lead to a 95% failure rate. In the past, you might have thought that you were the one failing at the diet. But with a 95% failure rate, the ownership of that doesn't fall on you. You did not fail the diets. Oh, no, 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 no. Diets have been failing you. You, my friend, are not going to be part of that statistic any longer. I know this because you're here listening to this podcast and you want something different for yourself. I also know diets can be tricky and sneaky, so I want to give you some more information on what to look for so that you don't accidentally fall into that slippery slope again. Now, diet culture is an upwards of a $78 billion a year industry. $78 billion every year. But it wasn't always like that. It wasn't until the Victorian era that diets and intentional weight loss actually became a thing. It was in the 1800s that people started to intentionally lose weight. Now, some will say it was in an effort to improve their appearance and their health. And if this is true... Why was there a sudden change in the 1800s in how we perceived appearances and health? It's because of racism. Now, I won't delve too deep into this topic today, but it is a good topic for future episodes. Sabrina Strings, great name by the way, a sociologist and professor at the University of California, Irvine, says this about the racist roots of diet culture. By the middle of the 18th century, because of the fact that the main mechanism for separating free from slave, which had been skin color, was no longer an effective sorting mechanism, they started to identify new traits of inferior and superior people. Their conclusion, she explains, was that inferior races have no self-control because of how interested they are in sex and food. This was really the beginning of linking what we considered an unruly type of fatness to blackness. When scientists in the late 1900s tried to come up with a reason for the health disparities between white people, black people, and Latinx people, Strings explains they concluded that it was the result of cultural deficits, like unhealthy diets and a lack of self-control, within those racial ethnic minority groups. 
Now that conclusion is completely wrong. Science has proven that black people, on average, tend to have heavier bodies than white people, not due to anything related to culture, but rather body composition and bone density. In fact, research presented at the Endocrine Society's 91st Annual Meeting in 2009 concluded that body fat is likely to be lower in black individuals compared to white individuals of the same height and weight. Another 2012 study published in the Journal of Obesity concluded the same thing. However, instead of using this information to inform medical practices and treatments, many researchers have used it to justify the racial beliefs they've held all along, that black people will always be fat and unhealthy, no matter what. When it was discovered that in reality, black people often tend to be heavier than white people, it was an easy way for doctors to wash their hands of any type of culpability or responsibility for the negative health outcomes of black people, Strings explains. Once researchers realized that black people were typically heavier, she says, they started to blame a myriad of health issues within the black community on weight instead of ordering tests, doing thorough examinations, and looking deeper into the root causes of things. This also got broadened from black people to all people in bigger bodies. Patients with bigger bodies are often dismissed by professionals and told, you just need to lose weight. Or they're told all of their symptoms or complaints are related to the size of their body. I do want to add that black people are still dismissed at a higher rate than whites in similar sized bodies. Now, as the years have progressed, the ideal body size has changed drastically, fluctuating pretty much all over the place. But the one thing that has stayed the same is this idea that fat bodies are not okay and should be feared and avoided at all costs, which has led to countless diets popping up and shape-shifting. This is something I want to talk more about so you can identify a diet when it tries to disguise itself. The keto diet has changed its name and has been marketed as different diets, but the bottom line is you're restricting your carbohydrate intake. The low-fat diet has been called all sorts of things, and at the base is limiting your fat intake. All diets have at least three things in common. One, a restriction or counting of calories. Two, restriction or limiting of food groups or certain foods. And three, reinforcing this belief that thin is best and you are not worthy unless you have a certain body type or are at least working to achieve that body. In recent years, there has been a shift away from diets because we as a society are realizing that diets don't work long term. Now, in order to remain a 78 plus billion dollar a year industry, diets have had to get crafty. So we've seen lifestyle changes popping up all over the place. We've seen a focus on health and wellness, meaning we're trying to improve our health by intentionally losing weight. Newsflash, losing weight doesn't equal improving our health. We've seen Weight Watchers shift to Wellness That Works or WW. We've seen celebrities co-opting intuitive eating into intuitive fasting We've seen programs coming out with the, quote, psychological way to lose weight, end quote. Remembering the three things all diets have in common, let's look at some of these shifts. Lifestyle changes. What does that even mean? 
It's diet culture's way of tricking you into not thinking it's a diet. But looking closer, most lifestyle changes involve restricting or limiting whole food groups, or at least certain foods, think carbs or sugar. They usually always focus on some type of exercise as a way to burn calories or burn fat. Diet commonality one, restricting or counting calories. Some lifestyle changes include logging meals and snacks into an app like MyFitnessPal, while others brag about not counting calories. However, we get to the diet commonality two, restricting foods, that usually leads to a restriction of calories. A popular phrase amongst lifestyle changers is everything in moderation. The term moderation means we're restricting or limiting rather than relying on our innate body wisdom to guide us. Diet commonality number two, limiting or restricting foods. Lifestyle change implies that what you're doing is wrong and must be changed, which often leads you to restricting or limiting certain foods or entire food groups that you view as bad. Diet commonality number three, Reinforcing the belief that you're not good enough unless you are thin or working towards a thinner body. Like I just said, a lifestyle change implies what you're doing is wrong and must be changed. And if it's wrong, that means you are wrong. And if you're wrong, you're not good enough. Let's look at the three diet commonalities in the other not diet diets. A focus on health and wellness implies if we consume too many calories, we're not healthy diet commonality number one. It also implies there are healthy versus unhealthy foods and we need to eat the healthy ones. Cue diet commonality number two. And it places a blame on anyone who either doesn't engage in these quote-unquote healthy behaviors because they quote don't care about their health or they aren't trying hard enough to be healthy when these behaviors don't produce the gold standard of health which diet commonality number three. Now I'm going to lump Weight Watchers or Wellness That Works or WW, whatever we're calling it these days, and Noom and other programs like these into one, just for the sake of time. The biggest problem here is diet commonality number three. Intentional weight loss reinforces the belief that thin is best. And that's at the base of all of these programs, doesn't matter how they're selling it, they're selling intentional weight loss, which is reinforcing the belief that you're not good enough unless you look a certain way. Commonality number one, all programs like this focus on eating less and exercising more, thus a focus on restricting or limiting calories. Commonality number two, these programs, similar to lifestyle changes, promote moderation, which is just a fancy way of saying restriction. So what sets my work as a coach and a counselor apart from others? What is the non-diet, health at every size approach in coaching and counseling? Well, our time together is really going to help you shift your thoughts and beliefs, coming to a place of acceptance and no longer feeling not good enough. This is so important because even if you stop dieting, marketing behind diets is so refined that unless we address the not good enough voice, we'll constantly be drawn back in. 
Shifting your thoughts and beliefs is also what clearly differentiates my work from a lot of others. And this isn't some mamby-pamby mindset shift. No, this is the real deal. This is learning how to be aware of your thoughts and your emotions as separate from yourself, how to change your thoughts and beliefs to change your behavior long-term. Most programs and coaches focus on the behavior side of things, whereas I focus on the thought, emotion, and feeling side, which is where we create lasting behavior change. There's a huge difference between drinking 64 ounces of water because you read somewhere that it's what you're supposed to do, and believing that water is nourishing to your body and you respect your body. When we start drinking more water, when we're trying to get to that 64 ounces of water because it's what someone said we're supposed to do, we focus on drinking X number of ounces every couple of hours. And eventually we stop doing that because it's time consuming and it takes a lot of energy and brain power to think about all of that. In this example, you're listening to someone else who doesn't know your body like you do. It's very rigid and exactly the same all the time. Whereas listening to your body and having the belief that you drink water because it nourishes your body leads to drinking an amount of water that fits your needs at that moment. Shifting our thoughts shifts our perspective and leads to different behaviors. If you want to hear more on this, have a listen to episode two, how our thoughts and emotions affect our eating. Our work together will never focus on intentional weight loss. I get it, and it makes complete sense to me as to why you might still want to lose weight. With all of the messaging in society and diet culture that thin is best, It's completely natural that you feel at odds with your body when it doesn't fit what you're told is ideal. Our first steps to this work include helping you understand you don't need to diet. You don't need to lose weight to feel better. So often our physical and mental complaints are said to be occurring because of our weight. That's utter bullshit. If weight were the villain, everyone in larger bodies would be experiencing the same things. But they're not. And people with smaller bodies have the same physical and mental complaints, but it's never said to be related to their weight. They're never told to just lose X number of pounds. Our work together will also help you identify those diets that are a wolf in sheep's clothing. Diets are hiding everywhere, and as we make more shifts to non-diet approaches, they have to keep up or they lose out on all that money. I want you to continue to be aware of this so you don't get sucked back into the diet black hole. When we work on emotional eating, we'll specifically dismantle diet culture, shift your perspective on emotional eating, help you identify and implement other coping tools, and give you a jumpstart to your mindful, intuitive eating journey. If you've been in my circle for a while, you know I don't think emotional eating is a bad thing or something we should stay away from. And if you're newer to the show, this may come as a surprise to you. Even if you've heard me say this in the last 30 episodes, it can be a while before you begin to believe it, which is why when we work together, I'll help you examine this from all angles until you can wrap your pretty little head around it. Eating to cope works. It's effective. And any time we only have one tool, we're screwed. 
So our work in the Emotional Eating Revolution program will help you identify other tools you can add to your coping toolbox. You'll also have plenty of time to practice using these tools, during which you'll likely find that there are some tools that work better than others in any given situation. The nice thing about having a toolbox with lots of tools is you have lots of options to choose from. Key being choice. You're in charge here. You get to choose which tools work best for you and which you don't really enjoy using. Working to end your struggle with emotional eating also gives you a jumpstart on your mindful intuitive eating journey, which is your key to never dieting again. Over the last five years, I've found we cannot fully embrace intuitive eating without first addressing our emotional eating, which is why I address this in my program, The Emotional Eating Revolution. Let's do a little recap before we say farewell. I believe everything starts with a thought, and to change our behaviors, those things we see on the outside, we need to change our thoughts and thought patterns first. This means becoming more aware of them. And my job as your fairy godmother is to help you notice these thoughts and see how they're affecting you. This is your key to having the life you want. In an effort to help you begin to explore your thoughts and beliefs about weight and dieting, I gave a brief history of diets, the racist roots of diet culture, and I shared the three things all diets have in common. One, a restriction or counting of calories. Two, restriction or limiting of food groups or certain foods. And three, reinforcing the belief that thin is best and you are not worthy unless you have a certain body or are working to achieve that body. The second part of this episode discussed what a non-diet health at every size approach in counseling and coaching might look like, sharing some of the focal points of the Emotional Eating Revolution program. I hope this episode helps shift your perspective on diets, seeing them as the villain. I also hope it gives a look into what working together might look like. Do you have a question or topic you'd like me to discuss on the show? Send me an email at info at and I'll see what I can do. Until next time, my friend.